Thank you, Parker. Thank you for leading us in worship today. Parker started singing in our preschool choirs. That's, that's a true story. And so for the teachers who wonder, is it worth it? It's worth it. For the parents who wonder, is it worth it? It's worth it. Thank you, Parker, for leading us. And we're so proud of what God's doing in your life and in your ministry. Today we come to our third sermon from Luke's second volume, The Acts of the Apostles. In our first sermon, the first sermon from Acts, the second volume that Luke pins, Luke picks up where he left off in his first volume. Acts begins, we saw in sermon number one, with the ascension of Jesus. And Jesus' command to his disciples right before he ascends, you shall receive power. Chapter 1, verse 8. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and the remotest part of the earth. Jesus is telling his apostles to stay in Jerusalem, to wait for the gift of the Spirit. You'll receive power, baptized by fire, and you'll become the empowered witnessing church. In the second sermon, last Sunday, we experienced that which they had been waiting for. We heard the Spirit and the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and we saw the Spirit and the flickering tongues of fire. And as a result of the Spirit coming down, the apostles stood up, and each began to preach the gospel in a known language. We learned a new word, xenolalia, when one is empowered or gifted to preach or speak in a language that one, he himself has not learned, but a known language to others. They began preaching in all the languages. The Jews had moved out in dispersion to various nations, and we had that list of nations for which they come there in Acts chapter 2, and everyone heard the gospel preached in his own language with the power and the gift of the Spirit. Now look at Acts 2, 7. What happens? They're amazed. Aren't all these who are preaching these various languages, aren't these Galileans? And then look at verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were looking on and saying, man, they're full of sweet wine. The confusion, the gift of the Spirit. The apostles have waited. The Spirit has descended. Sermon 1, Sermon 2. The gospel is preached in all the language, the reverse of Babel, where men are divided because they have different languages. Now all humanity is united because they have one common gospel, everybody hearing it, no matter his or her language. The reverse of Babel. Are these guys drunk? How are these Galileans preaching like this? in languages they haven't learned. What does, all, what does all of this mean? Well, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, Peter stands up and delivers a sermon to explain the phenomenon of the Spirit. They're all there in Jerusalem for Pentecost. The Spirit falls, the fire flickers, and the gospel is preached. Look at 2.14 and 15. But Peter... 
taking his hand, his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. These guys aren't drunk. The message I'm going to give you today was a theological earthquake for me. I have had the opportunity at various institutions to study with renowned scholars, European scholar R.E. Clements of the Prophets, E.R.L. Ellis, a Luke scholar, David Garland, a Luke Acts scholar, Bruce Corley, F.B. Huey, James Brooks, a textual critic, and Robert Sloan. Of all the lessons I absorbed about Scripture from all from whom I took lessons, what I'm going to give you today was the largest theological earthquake I ever experienced. My sole authority for preaching and teaching is God's Word, the Old and New Testaments. I, I try to faithfully deliver to you what I discover in my studies. So if I'm studying Jeremiah, I try to tell you what Jeremiah was saying in historical context to his first audience, and then we apply it to the church today. We're doing Luke, we do the same thing. If we're doing Hebrews or Paul, it's the same thing. I try to be faithful to the text. I don't try to shape the text. I try to let the text shape us. We don't tell the text what to say. The text tells us what to believe, think, and how to live. The paramount question is this. What is the center of the New Testament? What holds these very 27 books together? Some are gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're like little biographies of Jesus with a, a big focus on the last eight days of his life. And others are letters. We call them epistles. And there's even that odd apocalyptic piece at the end we call Revelation. And, well, they're, they're just so different. And, and some of them are very Jewish, like Hebrews, where Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And, and others are very Gentile, like the Gospel of Mark, where it's a, a Roman centurion, not a, a Jewish religion figure who at the foot of the cross says about the crucified one, surely this was the Son of God. In all these different books, biographies and history, we have a history and acts and, and letters and maybe James is a sermon, homilies, apocalyptic literature. What holds these 27 books together? Why are they together in the first place? And why were other books not included in the canon? Here's the earthquake right here. The early church had a theological core before it had a New Testament. That's when the earthquake happened for me with that statement right there. The early church had a set of beliefs and a theological core before there was ever a book of the New Testament written. Paul didn't have a New Testament. Paul's writing the New Testament. You see that? Paul couldn't turn to the, the book of 1 Corinthians to find out what to believe. He hadn't written it yet. 
They did not have a New Testament. Well, look at it this way. Let's assume, for sake of argument, the earliest book written in the New Testament is probably 1 Thessalonians, probably around A.D. 50. And the church's birth no later, probably earlier, but no later than A.D. 33. So even before the very first book is penned, you have two decades where the church is worshiping and singing and preaching, and they don't have a New Testament. You see that? And even after two decades, you only have one book in one city, Thessalonica. In fact, it's, it's probably over a century a hundred years of church before we have the New Testament. In fact, the first time we ever have a full list of all 27 books is A.D. 367, nearly 400 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. As Athanasius' bishop, Easter letter, gives us the fullest of the 27. So for a hundred years plus, they're doing what we're doing. They're worshiping, they're singing, they're preaching, they're praying, and they don't have a New Testament. And even though they don't have the book, they believe something, they teach something, they live something, and they preach something. You know what Scripture was for the early church? It was the Old Testament. That's what Paul had in his hands was the Old Testament. He, he would read from Isaiah or Psalms. That's what he used. But from the very beginning, despite having only the old text, the early Christians had a theology. They believed something. And the question is, where do we find what existed before the New Testament? Where do we find this theological core around which the New Testament is shaped? And the answer is, it is found best right here in Acts chapter 2. Right here, you have the theological core of all that the early church believed and taught. The first time I grasped this theological core that existed before a single New Testament book was written, I began to understand the New Testament in an entirely different way. I began to read the New Testament with a, a new set of lens. I started with this theological core now rather than the New Testament and read the New Testament through this theological core. Do you see what I'm saying? This idea was first developed by a scholar by the name of C.H. Dodd, and then this idea was pushed forward by Robert Sloan, who was your interim pastor about 24 years ago. It is a thunderous earthquake idea in New Testament scholarship. The Acts of the Apostles is more than a history of the early church. It is a theological history of the beliefs of the early church as the gospel goes all the way, beginning in Jerusalem, to the furthest, remotest parts of the earth, namely Rome and Acts. So what is the New Testament? The New Testament is when this theological core that I'm going to give you today hits an occasion or a problem in a church, and then Paul writes or pens a letter. You see that? 
So what Paul has, Paul has this theological core I'm going to give you today from the Acts of the Apostles. And then there's a church he starts in Corinth. We went through all of that on Sunday nights, and they're having problems. He takes this theological core, he applies it to their occasion or what's happening in Corinth. And we have these letters or this occasional literature, and that's, that's what the New Testament is. But it begins with this theological core. The best places to find this theological core that existed before a New Testament ever existed is places like hymns, like Philippians 2, or, or the hymn, like in Colossians 1, is what the early church sang probably before they ever penned a single letter. Well, the very best place of all places to find out what the apostles, thus the early church, believed and taught is when the apostles stand up and acts and preach. There it is. You see that? So we're about to listen to Peter's first sermon. This sermon exists before Acts, long, decades before Acts is ever written. This sermon exists. It is preached and heard and responded to. And so as we look at Peter's sermons in Acts, as we will today, we find out what existed before a New Testament was ever here. That in-between period, 100 plus years the church operated off of sermons like this by preachers like Peter. It all begins with a story about a rabbi named Jesus. Jesus is Jewish. He's a charismatic preacher. He's a miracle worker. He's a friend of sinners, and he interprets the law in a most unusual way. He's put to death at the instigation of Jewish authorities under the procuratorship of Pontius Pilate. And there follows a totally unexpected, at least unexpected by the disciples, resurrection. And there are multiple resurrection appearances by which his disillusioned and disheartened followers are now of the full belief that God has raised him to full life, absolute life. These Christians, convinced by their living Lord, use the Old Testament as their scripture and form churches, and they worshiped, and they were persecuted, and they did missions, and they had a message, and they carried the word of the risen Christ to the Mediterranean world. The church had this before it ever had the Gospel of John. I'm going to give you that core that exists on this very first day of the birth of the church. That's why this is the best place. This is day one of the church. This is preacher one, Peter, and this is what he says before there's ever a word penned in the New Testament. Tenet number one. In the events surrounding the person of Jesus, God was fulfilling the ancient Jewish scriptures. In the events surrounding the person of Jesus, God was fulfilling the ancient Jewish scriptures. That's what the early church believed before it ever had a New Testament. Well, look how he begins this first sermon. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 16. He gets up and tells them, hey, hey, it's early in the morning. These guys aren't drunk. And this is what he says. And, but this is what's spoken through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
Very first sermon, very first word, first day of the church, the word is, don't be surprised. Everything that's happening is coming from the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Old Scriptures, the prophets. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, he calls it, the end of verse 20, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. The Jews believed and taught that there's this age, the age to come, that glorious day of the Lord is the, the day when Yahweh intercedes and acts on behalf of his people. And so the first word from the first preacher on the first day of the church is, this is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is being fulfilled. Joel told you about this a long time ago. This is the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, he just keeps doing that, though, doesn't he? It happens again. In verse 34, notice he, he uses Psalm 110. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So not only does he use Joel, and now he uses the Psalms to say, in Psalm 110, the Lord, Yahweh, says to David's Lord, the Messiah, Jesus, I'm going to make your enemies a footstool. That is the, the ascension and the enthronement scene of Jesus. David envisions that day when Yahweh, the Lord, said to Jesus, sit at my right hand, well, there's another time right there in the middle where he uses it as well. In Psalm 16, look at verse 25, he uses Psalm 16. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow the Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness in your presence, brethren. I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried... And his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne. And he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up, to which we are all witnesses. That's Psalm 16. So in that first sermon, first preacher, first day of the church, three times he says everything that happened regarding Jesus was a fulfillment of the old scripture. Do you see that? Don't be surprised about the Spirit. Joel told you about the Spirit. Don't be surprised about the resurrection. David said, you won't allow me to decay. That the Holy One won't stay in Hades. Well, I know where David's buried. Peter says. His, his, his tomb is still there. David wasn't speaking of himself. David was looking forward and speaking of his descendants. David was a prophet speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. So three times, first sermon, the Spirit poured out. That's Joel. The resurrection, that's David in Psalm 16. The enemies becoming a footstool, the ascension and enthronement, that is Psalm 110. And so the events surrounding the person of Jesus God is busy fulfilling the Old Testament Scriptures. That's, that's what they believed before they ever had a New Testament. Here's the second thing they believed. The crucifixion of Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus had been ordained by God. and was a mighty act of deliverance and conquest for His people. The crucifixion of Jesus was ordained by God. And was therefore a mighty act of conquest and deliverance 
for God's people. In other words, the second main thing that was preached in that first sermon is God's not surprised by the crucifixion. God preordained, had foreknowledge of the crucifixion. Look at look what it says in verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to the death. But, but God raised him up and putting into the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Don't you like that? No wonder they preach like that. Death could not hold Jesus. Do we have to preach anything else? That's it, isn't it? Death could not hold Jesus. The crucifixion was not a surprise to Yahweh. It was a surprise to the disciples. They were headed to Jerusalem to instigate and begin an earthly kingdom where Israel was on top and they overthrew the, the Roman occupational government. It didn't happen that way. And they were surprised and disillusioned and disappointed in their Messiah who ended up being a crucified criminal. And yet God, God wasn't surprised at all. It was predetermined, foreknown by God. The crucifixion was the plan of God, not just the ploy of men. That's what Peter wanted them to know. Here's a third main tenet they believed. This same crucified and risen Jesus is being exalted to the heavenly throne and the right hand of God. This same crucified Jesus is being exalted to the heavenly throne and right hand of God and was installed as Messiah and Lord, the supreme executor of the kingdom of God. This same crucified and risen Jesus is being exalted to the heavenly throne of the right hand of God as installed as both Messiah and Lord as the supreme agent and executor of the kingdom of God. So, thirdly, not only was he crucified paying for your sins. Not only was he resurrected, showing the power of God over death, but thirdly, he was ascended and seated at the right hand of God. Look at verse 32 and 33 of this sermon. This Jesus God raised up again to which you are witnesses, therefore having exalted him to the right hand of God. And having received the, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth both what we see and we hear. Sometimes we preach crucifixion, we preach resurrection, but we might ought to have a, a, an exaltation, a, an ascension, a, a seated at the right hand of God Sunday. It was a major tenet. Not only was he crucified, not only was he resurrected, but he is a divine agent of the kingdom of God, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is made all the enemies of Jesus a footstool. He is both, Psalm 110, the Lord, the Kyrios, and the Christ, the Christos. He is Lord and Christ. Here's a, a fourth thing we find in this sermon. That is, Jesus pours forth the Spirit of God upon his people, and thus he is in our midst. That Jesus pours forth his Spirit among his people, the church, and thus Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is in our midst. 
Now, that was pretty obvious, isn't it? That's what this whole sermon's about. The, the Spirit has been poured forth, and they think the men are drunk, and the Spirit, there's tongues of fire, and they're preaching in languages they don't know. And he tells them, hey, John baptized with water, but now we're baptized with the Spirit and with fire. Look at, look at verse 18. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour forth my Spirit in those days. Verse 33, I just read it. Having been exalted the right hand of God, he poured forth his spirit, which you both see and you hear. There's a fifth thing they preached. This same Jesus will again be manifested to the world to vindicate his people and judge all the earth. This same Jesus will be manifested to the world to vindicate his people and judge all the earth. I got another way of saying that. It's the South Carolina way. It ain't over till it's over. Jesus is coming back. He comes back for his church, and he comes back as judge of those who are evil. Do you remember how we we began Acts chapter 111? Men of Galilee said the divine beings, why do you stand here looking at the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up to you from heaven will come in just the same way as you has watched him go to heaven. He's gone up, but he is coming back. In fact, in our passage today, in in Acts 2, verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, the great and glorious day of the Lord. Verse 19, I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. There is a day of judgment when Jesus, King Jesus, enthroned, exalted, returns. He's coming back for his bride. One last thing found in these sermons by Peter. Because all the others are true. If you want to participate in the saving work of God through Christ, if you want to be included amongst the people of God, you must turn and believe in the risen Lord, repenting and confessing Him through baptism. To participate in the saving work of God through Christ, to be included amongst the people of God, one must turn from sin and believe on the risen Christ, Messiah and Lord, confessing Him and showing that confession through the sign of baptism. In other words, the last thing in that first sermon is repent. Repent. If Jesus really does fulfill all of the ancient scriptures, if God is working uniquely in this rabbi Jesus for our salvation, if the story of Israel is continuing through the person of Jesus and now the church, if the Spirit is poured forth that Joel had spoken of, and Jesus is the Messiah and the Lord, therefore... Look at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. Look at verse 37 and 38. Now, when they heard this, this is the first sermon preached. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, What do we need to do? How do we respond? And Peter said to them, 180, repent. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy 
spirit. The last thing is, if one through five are true, you better do number six. You better repent at the preaching of the word. Now, here's your homework. We've run out of time. This afternoon, you're going to read the sermon in Acts chapter 3. It begins in verse 11. Let me set you up for your homework. They're on their way to the temple. Peter and John, there's a man there who's crying out for alms. He can't walk. And Peter says, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I do have you, I give to you in the name of Jesus, arise and walk. The man who could not walk is now walking, and everybody gathers around. How did the first sermon start? The people were what? Amazed at the Spirit. Now they're amazed at the healing. And in verse 11, Peter starts preaching sermon number two, and you will find every one of these five tenets in sermon number two. That's it. And as you read other sermons through Acts, you're going to find the same sermon over and over again. If you get these five things and thus do the sixth thing, repent, that's the core of the New Testament. Now, I know what Peter preached. Now, you know what Peter preached. You read that, you read chapter 3, verse 11 this afternoon, you're going to go, man, I wish I'd seen this before. This is exactly the core of the New Testament. So if Peter preaches the first five things twice in the first few chapters of Acts, if Peter is the prince of the apostles, if he is the apostle telling us what to believe empowered by the Spirit, I know how the first century hearers responded. They were pierced to the heart. They said, man, I need to repent. What can I do? How do I respond? He says, repent. Seek forgiveness for your sins. Be baptized like Jack this morning to show I die with him and I rise with him and become part of the people of God, the church, which has the Spirit of God poured forth upon it. I know how they responded. The question today is, how do we respond? Let us pray. Oh God, there's no other sermon to preach than Peter's sermon. God planned it. It fulfilled the Old Testament. He's ascended to the right hand. The Spirit is poured forth upon his people. He's coming again as Redeemer and Judge, and we must repent. It seems so powerful, it's kind of scary, God. Thank you for the hope it carries. Thank you for the grace in which it is immersed. Thank you for the forgiveness that sets us free and allows us to set others free. 
Thank you for the hope in Peter's first sermon. The name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning we hear the irreducible gospel. How will you respond? Maybe you're here this morning and this is your day to say, I finally get it. I studied for 10 years before I got this, and I, and I gave it to you today. I, I finally get it. Today, I get it. You don't get it by your own insight. You get it because the Spirit planned for you to get it today. Maybe it's your day to say, yes, he is Christ and Lord. Maybe it's your day to become part of a church that will keep forth the tradition of the Apostle Peter's sermon preached. Stand together as we have our hymn of invitation, 654. I'll be here at the front. Stand together as we sing. I'll meet you at the front. <laughs>